Um, if you have no idea who I am, because I've never been up here before, I am Grant Young. I'm the student ministries pastor, so um, thank you. Um, tomorrow actually marks the one year of my first day here, uh, and so it has been a privilege and an honor to to be hanging out with the students, to be here with you guys. You guys have been a huge blessing to our family. We love getting to call this place home. So I'm excited for what God has, has done and what he's going to continue to do. So I had a friend in college. His name was Michael Allen. He was a year behind me. And I, so I met him, obviously, when he was a freshman. My roommate was the RA. And so uh, he would always come into our room. And Michael Allen, we quickly learned, was a storyteller. He loved to tell stories about the crazy things that had happened to him during his life. And it was kind of weird because you wouldn't think this much happen, life had happened to an 18-year-old. But he had crazy stories about um, all sorts of getting hit in the face with a nine iron after he scared some girl. Um, apparently shark bites. Or, uh, they're just crazy stories. And we were never sure how much of them were actually true, how much of it was just him you know, telling good stories. But it was very entertaining and it became something that we looked forward to. He would come in, and eventually by the end of the year, these were kind of events. He would come, and everyone else would come, and he would tell these stories. And as I was thinking about this this week, I began to think about how much stories have an impact on us. There's something about stories that stir our hearts and our minds in a way that straight facts don't. And I believe this is why we go to the movies to watch stories, and we watch documentaries on Netflix. We don't want to pay for straight facts. We want to immerse ourselves in a story. Last week, we started a series that we are calling Storytime, and we are walking through some of the parables that Jesus tells. Derek laid out this definition for us that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And as we dig into Jesus' life and the way that he taught, we quickly learn that Jesus is a master storyteller. Because Jesus didn't tell stories just to entertain people. Jesus told stories that were intended to challenge and shape the people who were listening to them. He was telling stories for a purpose of growing them in ways that they didn't even know he was trying to because they were so immersed in his stories. You see, I believe we were made in the image of God. And that we have a God who loves to tell stories. So it makes sense that we, as image bearers of God, love stories as well. And I believe this is why stories have that kind of impact on us. Why we love to read books. Why we love to immerse ourselves in a story that takes us to faraway places. That puts us in the shoes of another person. That changes who we are at times. Those are the best stories. Not just the mindless entertainment, but the ones that leave us thinking, that leave us challenged by what they're trying to communicate to us. Our parable this week is found in Matthew chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles or if you're using your Version app, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 24 through 27. Jesus says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, and puts them into practice. It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine, and does not put them into practice, 
is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Now this parable is pretty straightforward. There are some parables of Jesus where you're like, I don't know that I fully understand what he's talking about. And luckily, he does it like he explains it for the disciples. This one's just pretty straightforward. He's like, it kind of lays it all out for us. I was studying this week, reading commentaries, and the commentators were like, you don't need us for this one. Like, this one's pretty straightforward. You got this. Um, it's basically our obedience or our lack of obedience determines what we're building our life on. So obedience to the way of Jesus means that we are choosing to build our life on a solid foundation. We are choosing to lean into all that Jesus has to say, and we want to live our lives in a way that honors him, that reflects who he is. That's a solid foundation. But we also have the opportunity to reject that, to say, no, I'm going to continue to live life my own way, to do things the way I want to do it. And if we do that, we are almost sure that we are going to live a life built on a foundation that is sure to collapse. Right? I can make this the shortest sermon ever. That could be it. We could be five minutes in. Good day, good day everyone. Hope you enjoy lunch. But we're not going to. Sorry. You don't get that luxury this morning. You're going to have to keep listening. Because I want to take us on a journey. Because I believe that the history of the Bible shows us something deeper about this parable. That God is doing something in this parable that has been built well before Jesus even came. So we're going to zoom out a little bit. We're going to just look at where this parable falls. Matthew chapter 7 is the last chapter on what we call the Sermon on the Mount. The, this parable is actually the last thing that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. And this, the Sermon on the Mount is really a primer for what life lived in the kingdom looks like. What it looks like when you give your life to Jesus and you live it the way that he is trying to establish it. And so the whole thing is really this example of what it should look like. So when he's talking about these words in verse 24, those are the words that he's talking about. He's not just saying all the things that I'm going to say throughout all my life. That wouldn't be a bad interpretation because Jesus says good things. He's not going to say anything that we shouldn't obey. But he is specifically talking about these words, this teaching that he gives in the Sermon on the Mount. But even then, if you go back to the beginning, chapter 5, we, we read these Beatitudes, and we know these. We, um, they give us an idea of who the kingdom is actually for. But do we know who he's talking about? At the very end of chapter 4, he says that, that Matthew says, Jesus goes about proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And he's not doing it to the wealthy, A-list people of Israel. He's going to the poor, the sick, the demon-possessed, the ones who have zero status, zero influence. And he begins his teaching by saying, blessed are you who have zero influence. The people who shouldn't be receiving this blessing, Jesus goes to them and he says, the kingdom of God is for you. It's available to you. This isn't something that's for just the elite. It is for you. And I think there's some of us in, this, in here this morning who need to hear that. That the kingdom of God is for you and it is available to you. The kingdom of God is for you and available to you. This wasn't even something that just stopped at that point. It continues on today, which is why I think we need to understand 
what Jesus is saying here. But the kingdom, as Jesus closes his Sermon on the Mount with, the kingdom is for people who will receive it. He's not going to force the kingdom on us. He is going to ask us to receive it, though. Now, for me, this word kingdom is a hard concept to grasp because I live in America, and America is built on democracy. None of this monarchy stuff, right? This is what 1776 was all about, democracy. All we really know, maybe all that I really know about this idea of the kingdom is the royal wedding, right? Like, that's all I know about what's happening over in England. They're the only kingdom I can think of, and they have very elaborate weddings, and that's really all I know. Some of you are like, that's all I know, too. And, but you know the change. So this last wedding that happened, this American girl had to become royalty, right? There was all of these things that she had to do in order to fit into the kingdom. And this is what the tabloids care about, right? She didn't sit right, or she almost didn't sit right, or she didn't wear the right thing, or whatever. And we go, this is what it looks like to live in a kingdom. That sounds terrible. Thank you again, America for 1776. <laughs> we see it as pomp and circumstance. It's just all this fluff. There's no real substance to it. But that's where we need to make sure that the similarities between our understanding of the kingdom end with the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is about so much more than that. It is about influencing everything about who we are and the way that we live. But again, to understand the kingdom of God that Jesus is trying to establish we have to understand Israel's history. So we have to zoom out further, and we have to see what is Jesus trying to do? What is Jesus building upon when he is talking about this idea of the kingdom? So we're going to go all the way back to Genesis 12. And for the next hour, no, just kidding. Um, we're we're going to try and do a really basic, quick overview of the Old Testament. Okay? So Genesis chapter 12, God, God calls this guy named Abraham. Abram at the time, he says, I'm going to make your family great. I'm going to build you into a huge nation. And Abraham's like, great, but I have zero kids. And so he has to trust that God is actually going to do what he says he's going to do. The rest of the story of Genesis is really how God unfolds that plan, how he gives Abraham a son, how Abraham's son begins this lineage of a great nation. And there's some hiccups along the way, but the story ends with a man going down to Egypt who's sold there by his brothers. What is his name? Joseph. Joseph is the son, his favorite son, who gets sold into slavery. And he goes down to Egypt, and through God's power, God puts him in a position of influence. And he ends up saving not just his family, but the entire nation of Egypt as well. He becomes great, and this is God's way of saving his people and continuing the story on. Then there's a 400-year gap between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. And things have changed drastically for Abraham's family. They have done the part of populating. They have done well there. There are so many of them that the Pharaoh, who has forgotten everything about Joseph, he is threatened. And so what does he do to exert his control? He puts God's people into slavery. And they cry out to God. And God calls a man named Moses. Moses, to lead his people out. He is going to be the one through whom God is going to continue this promise on. And he, through God's power, through these mighty acts, he brings the people of Israel out into the wilderness 
And they come to this place called Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai, and what happens at Mount Sinai, is foundational to everything else that happens in the Old Testament. Because at Mount Sinai, God says, you are now my people. I'm going to invite you into this relationship where you are going to be my people, and there's a certain standard that comes with that. You are going to live your life a certain way. You are going to look a certain way so that when people look at you, when the nations around you look at you, they see me. And they're drawn to me because of you. And so it's contingent on Israel actually living in to this problem, into this promise, and into this way of living. But almost immediately, they screw up and worship another god. It's as if on the wedding night, the bride has cheated on the groom. And you're left to think, this is not going to end well. And it really doesn't. For the most part, the Old Testament is story after story of God pursuing the people. They kind of turn back and then they screw up again. And over and over, and God continues to move his plan along, but it is met with resistance time and time again by his very own people. God sends prophets to them to warn them. My favorite description of a prophet is a covenant watchdog. He is, they are laser focused on this promise, this covenant this covenant that God establishes with his people, and they are constantly trying to warn the people about what will happen if they do not turn back, if they do not get it, if they do not listen to what God had for them. He's, they promise God is going to bring about destruction. He is not going to let you become the oppressor. But as Israel becomes the dominant culture, as God blesses them and they flourish under, under kings like David and Solomon, they continue to just miss it. They continue to the point where they have become just like Egypt. They are the oppressors. They do not look after the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed. They do not live into what God had envisioned. And they don't care. They're set on their own way. God invites them to be a kingdom led by him. And instead, they want to become a kingdom like all the ones around them. They want to do it their way. And so eventually God allows for them to be overthrown. Eventually the temple's destroyed. They're moved out of the land. Things look terrible for them. But along the way, God has given these promises of what he wants to do, how he is going to continue to unfurl his plan. That there will be someone someday who will bring about everything that God had originally planned for. Who will lead Israel back, not to just its glory days, but even better. Someone who gets it. And who will obey and do what God has asked. And this promise hangs there for most of the Old Testament. Or most of the Old Testament. And God is continuing to point them in a direction. Eventually they get to go back to the land. They rebuild the temple, but things are never quite the same for them. The temple doesn't have quite the majesty it used to have. They're still trying to figure out what it looks like to, to obey God. And this is where the Old Testament ends. And there's going to be 400 years of silence from God. No prophets, no nothing. And they are waiting. They're waiting for this promised one who's going to make all things right again. And then Jesus shows up. This is the world Jesus steps into. Jesus steps into this longing and this waiting and this anticipation of that person who's going to fix everything. And so when he starts doing miracles and he starts teaching the way that he does, people are intrigued. People are interested in what he has to say because they, they remember there is someone who's coming. And maybe 
Just maybe this is going to be the person. The problem is, Jesus doesn't talk about the kingdom the way they're expecting. They're expecting someone who's going to come in and overthrow Rome and bring them freedom and establish them as a national power. And God's plan is far bigger than that. He's not interested in just Israel. He's interested in all of the nations. And so Jesus comes in talking about a kingdom that's very different from the one they're looking for. And I think this is what Jesus still does with us. We have a picture, an idea of what it looks like for the kingdom of God to be established in the here and now, but it is entirely rooted in our expectations of what that should look like. It's entirely rooted in the things that make us comfortable, and we try to align our comfort and our will and our plan with God's, and we try and say, this is what God wants, and Jesus says, or is it? He's going to push us into places that are far more deeper and far more challenging than we are expecting him to. Because his kingdom doesn't make sense. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. His kingdom doesn't make sense by our cultural standards. His kingdom is upside down. It takes everything that's normal and it says, this is actually the way of the kingdom. And so he speaks about a kingdom that's built on love. He speaks about a kingdom that is built on focusing on others. And the people of Israel aren't quite sure what to do with it. You see, this was the kingdom that Israel was supposed to be. This is what God had always planned for them to be. And Jesus is, is saying, I'm going to take that role upon myself. And there's so many things about Jesus' life, from his baptism to some of these other things that happened to him, that aren't just happening for, the, for no reason. It's symbolic of Jesus taking upon himself the role of Israel. To say, you were supposed to point people to God. You were supposed to show them what I was like. But I'm going to do that now. I'm going to do that by modeling what this kingdom looks like. So when people see me, they're going to see what the Father is like. And so if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it covers topics that range from the whole spectrum. It touches all of life in this sermon. And he's clear that the people of God are supposed to be salt and light. There's something about them that is supposed to show people who God is and what he is like. There's one theologian who says this. His name's John Stott. He says, the Sermon on the Mount is the most complete delineation anywhere in the New Testament of the Christian counterculture. Here's a Christian value system, ethical standard, religious devotion, attitude to money, ambition, lifestyle, and network of relationships, all of which are totally at variance with those of the non-Christian world. He's saying the kingdom of God often runs counter to the culture that we live in, and it shows us a radically different way to live. It's not content to just let it look like everything else. It has a much bigger picture of what it looks like to be a part of God's plan for all nations. So what I want to do is I want to walk through the Sermon on the Mount and kind of summarize each section. If you have your Bible open, you can kind of follow along with the little subheadings. I'm just going to summarize it, and the verses will be on the screen, the, the reference, so you can track with what we're trying to do. But I want us to see how this is pointing us to living a life that is much different than the culture that around us. So there's a way that God shows us to be people of the kingdom. So we'll start with, we'll start with verse 
21. See, people in the kingdom get angry at different things than the rest of the world. And they handle their anger differently. People of the kingdom choose to see each other as image bearers instead of objects to be consumed for pleasure. People of the kingdom fight for their marriage because God has thought to be in a covenant relationship with us. People of the kingdom are honest, and when we say yes, we mean yes. And when we say no, we mean no. So we don't have to say anything else because we are trustworthy. People of the kingdom do not seek to get revenge, but instead they seek to love those who are out to get us. People of the kingdom love our enemies and pray for them because anyone can love the people who love them. Only kingdom people have the love of Christ that gives us the strength to love those who hate us. People of the kingdom are generous, but they do so in a way that points people to God and not to themselves. They humbly give, not for show. People of the kingdom pray, and they pray for God's will and God's kingdom above their own. People of the kingdom fast in a way that doesn't draw attention to themselves, but instead we find joy in the God who provides all things. People of the kingdom do not let consumerism be their God, but instead we choose to serve God with our money. People of the kingdom do not worry because they know that God deeply cares for them, and they know he's going to provide, so they choose to seek his kingdom first and then let everything else fall in line after that. People of the kingdom do not judge others because we know that we have a log in our own eye that we need God to deal with. So we walk humbly knowing that we all have our issues. People of the kingdom seek the will of God and are persistent in asking and seeking and knocking until God acts in the way that only God can act. People of the kingdom choose the narrow path even though it's challenging because we want the life that only God has to offer. People of the kingdom know the heart and voice of God so well that they're able to discern the voice of the shepherd from a wolf in sheep's clothing. People of the kingdom don't just do the task of religion, but instead they seek to know the very heart of God so that there's a deep and abiding relationship. People of the kingdom don't just listen to the words of Jesus and think they sound like a nice ideal. Rather, they fight to bring heaven to earth in the same way that Jesus did. And in doing so, they build their life on a firm foundation that will not be shaken. So when we go back to this parable and we look at who is a wise builder and who is a foolish builder, it is all determined on who is committed to building what kingdom. It's all determined on whether people are going to be committed to bring the kingdom of God into the present and who is interested in establishing their own kingdom. Or who's interested in furthering and establishing the kingdom that our culture is trying to establish? You see, how we choose to handle our money shows which kingdom we are trying to build. How we treat the poor, the oppressed, the immar- and the marginalized shows what kingdom we are committed to. How we use the power and influence that we've been given shows which kingdom we are com- building. What we'll do in order to get ahead shows which kingdom our heart really longs for. And in the same way that Israel rejected the way of God so that they could look like the people around them, we are often tempted to do the exact same thing. Where we want to look like the culture around us. We're not so interested in the Christian counterculture. We want to fit in. And so we are willing to reject the way of Jesus so that we can fit in with those around us. There's a couple of questions I want us to consider today. The first one is this. 
one, which kingdom am I committed to building and establishing? Which kingdom am I committed to building and establishing? There are so many ways, both inside of LifePoint and outside of LifePoint, that we can choose to build the kingdom. One, you can volunteer in Life LP Kids on a Sunday morning or in things like VBS. We had a wait list for VBS this year, which is awesome, but the reason we had a wait list is because we didn't have enough people to work so that we could bring those kids in. That's a way that you can build the kingdom. You can volunteer with gifts of groceries. You can go help and serve the poor and the marginalized in our community. You can become an usher. You can be that smiling face that lets people know that when they walk in here, they are welcome and they are wanted. We need ushers, first and third service. Shameless plug. Dr. Derek, if you're interested. You can become a leader in LP students. We are always looking for adults who are willing to come alongside students and say, I see you and I am interested in you and you are loved and I want to walk through you, walk with you through this difficult time of your life. And if you go, I don't have the time for that, you can help sponsor students to go to camp so they can experience Jesus. You can lead a life group. You can be someone who opens up their home and says, we are willing for people to come in here and have a place where they can connect with other people outside of a Sunday. New groups are starting soon. But you can also build the kingdom outside of LifePoint. The kingdom is far bigger than just LifePoint. You can sponsor a child through compassion or world vision. You can change the trajectory of their life by simply giving money to an organization that wants to come alongside them. You can become a foster parent or adopt a child. Pull them out of a system that is broken and let them know that they are loved. If you can't do that, you can sponsor people. Help them adopt a child. It's expensive and they need people to come alongside them. You can find mentoring programs for at-risk youth. This one's applicable today. You can be good tippers when you go out to eat. You can have your neighbors over for dinner. You can invite your coworker to church. There are countless ways that we can build the kingdom of God right where we are. It doesn't have to be something huge and grand. It can just simply be deciding that today I'm going to live into the kingdom that Jesus has and is trying to build. The second question is, what am I building my life on? What foundation am I building my life on? And is it going to withstand the storms of life? Is it something that is going to withstand all that the life has to throw out? Because the same thing happens to both houses. The parable is not, oh, if you build your house on the, on the foundation of Jesus, everything's rosy and it's always sunny. No, the same thing happens to both houses. The difference is the foundation. And Jesus is giving us a warning here. And he says, listen, there's a, there's a certain way that is going to lead to success and there's a certain way that is going to lead to destruction. Will you choose to build your life on a solid foundation? And we have the choice whether we're going to accept that or we're going to reject that. That's a choice that Jesus leaves with us. My mom has always loved home improvement shows. HGTV was on in our house all the time when I was growing up. Um, and so some of that has kind of stuck with me. So uh, my wife and I kind of recently, with everybody else in the world, we watched Fix, Fixer Upper. Um, and I'm sure I'm not the only person who thought, we could probably move to Waco, right? <laughs> Waco sounds nice, I guess. Even though the weather in Texas is terrible, um, it's 100 degrees and 100 humidity. It's terrible. But Waco sounds nice because Chip and Joanna are there. Right? But the whole premise of this show 
The whole premise is that you buy a pretty terrible house so that they can turn it into your dream home. You save some money. Don't buy a brand new house. Let them bring this house with character, which means major issues, <laughs> and let them fix it. And that sounds great. But the problem is I'm not handy at all. I'm terrible. Like, I'm surprised I can change a light bulb without getting electrocuted. That's how terrible I am with household things. And this would be like us going on that show. And when we get to that inevitable point where they are taking out a wall and they're like, oh no, there's like a million termites in this wall. Or there's asbestos. Like, there's something terrible about this house that is going to eventually lead to the death and destruction of the people who are in it, unless they let Jim and Joanna fix it. Right? I imagine getting to this point, and Chip's like, hey, we need to do some major, major things to this house, or else you will die. It will fall in and collapse on you. And I go, oh, thanks, Chip. But I'm good. I've got this. I can make sure that this, this won't happen to me. It might happen to everybody else, but this certainly won't happen to me. But it inevitably will, because I'm terrible. I, I cannot fix a house. It would just continue to get worse until I died in it. And this is, this is kind of the picture that Jesus is painting. He's saying, listen, there's a certain way of life that is going to end a certain way. If you choose to build your life on me and on these words and you live into the kingdom, you're going to build your life on a solid foundation and things will happen but it's built on me, and I am never shaken. And so your foundation will be secure. But you can also choose to do it your way. You can choose to buy into everything that our world has to offer. You can throw yourself into there. But you need to know that there is a certain way that that will end. And it'll end with destruction because those things cannot withstand everything that life is going to throw at it. Money will fall away, will go away. Your relationships have the potential to end. We all, 100% of us die. How are you going to choose to live your life in the here and the now? C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and he's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed to happen. And so when they happen, you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. This would be better if I had a British accent. And it does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing, or thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. So I want to give you like a picture of this. The largest residential palace is one that I do not know how to pronounce. It's somewhere in the Middle East and I can't pronounce it. But it's over 2 million square feet. 2 million. So it's not the largest palace, but it is the largest residential palace. That would be nice, right? Like, this is a little better than what I'm living in here. You see, but I'm content at times 
to live in a decent little cottage. I'm content to let God have a little piece of me. And God's like, I would like to do so much more with you. Will you let me do so much more with you? The kingdom is not about the suburbs. The kingdom is not just confined here. The kingdom wants to blow the suburbs out of the water. It's for all people in all nations. And he wants to build us into palaces. Why? So that we can live in a palace? No, because God's kingdom is not about us. You see, when you build a palace, people notice it. People notice that that house is not like my house. And so the, the idea is God comes in and he does these things. He transforms our lives. He changes us. The kingdom transforms us so that when people see us, they see him. That they're not just focused on, oh, you have a lot of money. You have a big house. But they say, there's something different about you. You live life differently than everybody else. And that's what the kingdom's after. 